Hey everyone, it's Chad. Welcome back to Mission Daily. We have a giveaway for everyone that enters. You can win a prize at mission.org slash books. Steph, what can people win? Books that you love. Do you want to read like a CEO? Chad has a bookshelf that probably has, I was actually calculating in my head how much you've probably spent on books because there's so many in our studio. I'd say there's probably 500 here. So a fraction. You, this is, you don't even know about the hidden libraries oh, I have stored oh in my parents' garage. Oh, I forgot about that. Well, anyways, it's called Read Like a CEO because we are taking books off of Chad's bookshelf and we are putting it in a giveaway. Books are the best investment in yourself. And the reason why we wanted to do this giveaway, I recently started paying myself a salary. Yay, woo And which is a major milestone. And I wanted to immediately give back to everyone out there that's listening that has helped us get where we're at. And it's really exciting. So this is my way of saying thank you to the listeners. So at mission.org slash books, uh, I picked out a number of books from my bookshelf and the top 30 people who enter. And you can see how to get more entries, all that stuff at mission.org slash books. Uh, but the top 30 people who enter get to pick one book from this list and I'll mail you a physical copy. I'll buy it. The next 15 get three books. So if you're in the top 15, you get three books from the list, your picks. And if you're in the top five, you get five books each. So this is pretty cool. And you can get more entries for every single email uh, subscriber you refer. Yep. And stay tuned for the next little ad segment because we will tell you why Chad picked some of these books to get you excited. (laughs) And mission.org slash books, go there, enter. And everyone who enters is going to get a copy of 100 Business Ideas. That's an ebook we created with 100 ideas to start making more money and yeah, maybe even start a business uh, this weekend. Yep. So enter the giveaway and good luck. May good. the odds be ever in your favor. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I'm Jeffrey Wright. And you're listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hello, and welcome to Mission Daily. This is producer Rachel Kanya. Today we have Reed Mittenbuehler, author of Bourbon Empire, The Past and Future of America's Whiskey, which dives into the history of bourbon in American culture dating back to the Whiskey Rebellion in 1794. Chad and Reed discuss how whiskey grew from a few backyard distilleries to an industry that pumps out millions of bottles a year. Reed also talks about the secret history behind the industry that you won't see in commercials. Stay tuned to learn more about the history of whiskey in America from Reed Mittenbuehler. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Mission Daily. And today we have an awesome guest who I'm looking forward to talk to. Reed, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Reed, when did you have your first spirit? You know, that's a great question because I don't remember. It must be... I mean, it must have been at some point trying trying it when I was a kid, like, you know, sip from a, a parent's glass or something. But really, the the first time I really remember, I was in the military. It was after college. And I hadn't really been a drinker. Uh, I wasn't really a drinker at that point. But, you know, after work on Fridays, sometimes you'd go to the officer's club, you know, just to kind of get to know your... It was kind of a tradition. And everyone sure. kind of had a drink. And there were a lot of guys who and women who had been in Germany... Um, so it was a big beer thing, and it was just kind of to stand out. You'd see whiskey. Whiskey wasn't popular at that point. It's had a resurgence in popularity in the last decade or so, but this is in the early 2000s. And it was kind of a way 
to stand out a little bit. It was something that was different. So that was kind of the allure. I just kind of like the image of it. There's a lot of symbolism in whiskey and that's really how it started for, for really no other great reason than that. Very cool. And you mentioned in the military, what branch were you in and uh, how long were you in? I was in the Air Force uh, for four years. Cool. I had done uh, ROTC undergrad and nice. I was in Washington the whole time. Yeah. 2000, 2004. Oh, very cool. So you were stationed in Washington the whole time or did you, uh, did you go anywhere? Or? Yeah. I mean, I would travel around, but never for very, very long periods. And then when I got out, I was a reporter. I covered the military. I covered military issues on the Hill for a little bit in House Armed oh, Services cool. Committee and, and the different committees and, and, and that sort of thing. And when you left the military, you're covering issues on the Hill. Are you drinking whiskey on the, the evenings and week, weekends or mornings? I don't know. I'm not, not judging here, but. <laughs> I know, right. You know, a little bit, it really was more of a, you know, it's kind of a foodie thing, the way people get into wine or beer or, you know, what have you. And you want to learn more about the foods you're drinking. I was just kind of a, a casual fan, became interested in it, wanted to learn more about it. Um, you know, how is it made? You know, what's the history of it? The way a lot of people do with foods that they enjoy. And not a particularly heavy drinker, but was started to be pulled into the history of it. Um, I read, I found a couple books. They were usually guidebooks that explained a lot of the technical aspects of how it was made. But they'd always have these very thin sections in the beginning about the history, kind of going back to the frontier days. And they'd very briefly touch on, you know, the Whiskey Rebellion, which is kind of this, you know, battle for kind of the economic heart of the United States. You've got Alexander Hamilton versus Thomas Jefferson, these competing philosophies and ideas. And I would be really pulled into that. I wanted to learn more about that. And I started looking for that book and realized that it didn't really exist. And, you know, as an author, that's kind of when you know you've got your next book topic sometimes is when you're looking for the book you want to read and you don't find exactly what you'd like. Those were other, those other books were good, but a lot of them were, were ratings guides. You know, they kind of tell you what to drink and, you know, give you their opinion on it and that sort of thing. But I was looking more for something that was a history, kind of tying it into the economic, political, cultural history of the country, how this product represented that, but also how as those things changed over the course of U.S. history, how it changed the product itself. And it's kind of one of those those kinds of products. Whiskey is, you know, it's kind of small on its own, but it represents a much larger story when you start tying it into those aspects of the greater history. So take us back to the Whiskey Rebellion. It's something I've heard of, but I don't know too many details about it. I know whiskey was a big part of frontier life and part of the expansion of the early United States, but take us back there and what was it and uh, why does it matter? So, right, whiskey was a huge part of American life. You know, before the revolution, America was a big rum drinking nation. You had a lot of sugar and sugar byproducts imported into the United States from the the West Indies. Um, A lot of it was distilled in places like Boston. Americans drank a tremendous amount of it. You know, the estimates vary, but probably five to six times more per capita then than they do today. I mean, we were, wow. we're, we were a very heavy <laughs> drinking nation. Um, Not making good decisions. <laughs> right. And yeah. the sugar industry, you know, really was, you've got slavery involved. It's kind of tying together points of the, the, the British crown's empire. And then at the, you know, we've got the, the sugar act and you've got all of these taxation policies that are leading into the revolution. And when the revolution breaks out, all of that kind of stops, you know, the, the, the British kind of laid down the hatchet. And so America starts switching because you've got so many people drinking soldiers rations, have spirits in them. They make the switch to whiskey. It's a native grown, you know, crop. 
it's seen as being much more patriotic than rum. You know, kind of the same way Americans start switching to coffee versus tea, you know, which was right. also associated with the empire. So we make the switch to whiskey. And it just makes sense. You've also got a lot of people at this time moving into the frontier where grain is a lot easier to get than sugar, sugar byproducts. So whiskey is a huge part kind of, of our of our diets culturally. People are drinking it all the time. It's also an important part of the economy. People are using it as currency. When you're in these Western frontier territories, you know, they couldn't get their excess grain to market. We've got this huge surplus, so they distill it into whiskey, which helps it retain its value. In fact, its value increases over time as it ages because, mm. you know, improves, quality improves as it's sitting there in these barrels. People are also using it as currency. So the Whiskey Rebellion really erupted in what was then the far parts of the frontier, you know, western Pennsylvania. In order to pay for the revolution, Alexander Hamilton devises a tax scheme where he's going to tax whiskey in order to pay you know, the war debts. We've got a lot of farmers and distillers, and, and I use farmers and distillers at this point in history interchangeably because it was really just a byproduct to farming. I mean, just you're a farmer, you're growing grains, and this is a surplus you have. What else do you do with it? You're not going to let it rot, so you just distill it into spirit. And the federal government decides to tax, tax it, and the taxation scheme was different between big, larger, consolidated producers on the East Coast and small frontier settlers. So it kind of becomes a battle you know, big versus small, kind of a David versus Goliath, Goliath thing. And the big, larger East Coast distillers had more favorable tax policies than the ones in the West. Um, hmm. they, were, they were taxed based on the overall amount that they produced, whereas the smaller distillers on the frontier were taxed based on the size of their stills. So even if they weren't using it, and a lot of them didn't really use them for most of the year, they only used it during those specific times of the year where the crop had come in, they had a surplus, and they needed to. So the frontier basically rose up. I mean, it was almost like a smaller version of the Revolutionary War. A lot of them are using language like, you know, we just fought against this. You're doing it basically to us. And whiskey kind of becomes a symbol of something much larger. At that point in history, you had a lot of small businesses that were becoming owned by large East Coast financiers. They see a lot of their control and their independence slipping away. So they threatened to secede from the United States. You know, we're, we're going we're gonna to leave. And you've got these leaders of the movement, you know, who call themselves the Robespierre of the West. You know, they used a lot of the language of the French Revolution. And the rebellion was ultimately squashed by George Washington, who really walked a fine line. He was like, you know, this is a test of federal authority and control. And if we, we let them do this, then it threatens our strength as a country. But also the fact that it was even called the the Whiskey Rebellion is a little misleading because it was about that. I mean, that helped spark it. But really, it was about a larger set of issues. It was about a, this loss of control across a lot of industries. And Hamilton coined the term Whiskey Rebellion kind of to discredit it a little bit. Whiskey was seen as a, as a you know, kind of a lower class drink. It's a drink of the frontier. You know, rich people back then drank Madeira, imported wines, things like that. And so by calling it the Whiskey Rebellion, it was like, oh, it's just about this thing that people just get drunk on out in the poor, out in the poor districts. It's kind of a, an, an interesting side note about it. Um, but it also came to represent, I think, this struggle you've always had in American political discord about the little man versus the big man. You've got the philosophy of Jefferson, who's championing these small yeoman farmers, and Alexander Hamilton, who's kind of championing larger big business. Both of them had, you know, agreements that, that kind of stand for and against, but 
the Whiskey Rebellion really became a symbol of that. That's fascinating. So is there, is the Whiskey Rebellion, is it widely known? Are people following this in papers at the time? Is this like, is the, is the whole oh, country following it or is it? It was a big deal. Oh, you yeah, know, a- absolutely. Right. So as you're studying this and like, what was the uh, climax or the solution of the rebellion where uh, Washington and Hamilton were able to bring the country back together and prevent the secession or rebellion? Well, it, it ended more with a whimper than with a bang. You know, Washington mobilizes you know more troops than have been mobilized for the battle at Yorktown. I mean, it's it's a big army. And he marches out into the frontier. He goes to Western Pennsylvania. And it just kind of ended. I mean, it was a show of force. And a lot of people were screaming for blood. They wanted the leaders of the Whiskey Rebellion hanged. And Washington, this is kind of part of the, the difficult path he walked as he decided not to take, you know, revenge or anything like that. He, he, there were only two men who were really sentenced. He didn't go after the leaders. A lot of leaders fled to the Western territories that weren't yet hmm. states. But let's come together as a nation. We're not going to, not going to be vindictive about this. And it just, it just kind of ended with a whimper as opposed to a bang. I think that's fascinating because it's easy to fall into the mindset where you want vengeance, you want retribution and everything. But I think letting things go is the key to uh, solving things over the long term, basically. So that's, yeah, that's, that's really, really interesting. What was the next piece or point in history where whiskey started to go on the rise? Maybe like when did whiskey start ascending as a, as a spirit? Well, at that point, it was always, it was consumed by a lot of Americans in huge numbers. And between the Whiskey Rebellion, which the tax went away also when Jefferson became president, that tax went away because a lot of frontiers people saw it as, you know, you're taxing our income and there wasn't an income tax at that point. You know, you're taxing our livelihood. You're taxing something greater than just the spirit. You know, they would call the luxury tax and you get in all those debates. There wasn't a whiskey tax up until the Civil War. So between that period and the Civil War, you actually have a time where a lot of innovation was going on with whiskey because people could experiment. You know, they could experiment with ways to distill. They could experiment with aging and they could do all these things without having to worry about taxes and and so forth. And it really becomes kind of a, a national drink. It really was something that Americans drank a huge amount of until about the 1960s. So that's sort of the next the next step is you've just got people making it on the frontier. It's very popular and you're seeing it evolve as a spirit. It's methods of manufacture are evolving as a spirit. Um, there was this one, a number of innovators, but a really important one. His name was Dr. James Crow. He's a Scottish physician. He moved to Kentucky and he's making whiskey and he starts to delve into the science of it. You know, he starts looking at sugar content and you know, how yeast reacts to this and the temperature that he's looking at all those kind of geekier details about the manu- methods in manufacturing. And he would advertise, you know, he would share this information with other distillers. So you start to see whiskey kind of moving ahead in leaps and bounds, kind of in a culinary standpoint, except to this point, you didn't have brand names yet. Really? Hmm. There were really no brand names before the Civil War. It was really more of a commodity, a crop, the same way you'd have pork as a crop. You don't really think of it under a brand name. What type of proofs were there at this time? Like, uh, what was the alcohol content like? I mean, the same as it would be. I mean, that's all adjustable. Okay. Um, Was, you know, 40 proof basically like the norm or or I guess 80 proof or what what were the ranges? Why don't I get into how it's made just so people can have a little context about it? Yeah. So... 
you know, whiskey, whiskey is a general term the way that wine or beer is a general term. You know, you've got beer but that can refer to, you know, Pilsner or a stout or, you know, Hefeweizen. You've got all these different, same thing with wine. You've got white wines and red wines. Whiskey is a general term. Bourbon is a style of whiskey. Scotch is a style of whiskey. Irish whiskey, you know, right. You've got all these different styles. And generally, whiskey is, you know, it's made out of grain. You cook the grains, you ferment them, and then you distill them. You run them through a still to separate the alcohol from, from what is basically beer. Uh, and you have a distillate, and that comes off the, the still. There's a range that it can come off the still. You've got lower proof, which kind of helps preserve some of the original flavors of the original ingredients, and the higher stills kind of strip that out. So when you get to super, super high proofs, you're getting into products like vodka or Everclear, where all those flavor compounds are, are stripped. And then you age it in a wood barrel. It's usually charred and toasted. And as the whiskey, which comes out as a clear spirit, sits in that barrel, it soaks flavors out of the wood. Also, you've got other important factors going on like oxygenation and esterification, and that's helping those flavors develop. Um, mm. A good portion of the flavor of what you're drinking in your glass comes from the barrel. The barrel's a, a very important step. And you can age for any, I mean, you can age for, some whiskeys are only aged for a couple of years, some are aged for several decades, you know, that that all depends. Yeah, very, very cool. So in the 60s, what was the turning point? Was it access to other mind expanding things or other drugs or other substances that kind of slowed the whiskey consumption? Uh, did people just lose interest or what, what do you think it was? Yeah. So in my book, one of my, one of the favorite things I like to talk about is a lot of the rules that govern our drinking are, it's all like fashion, right? It's like hemlines mm. go up, hemlines go down, lapels get fat, then they get skinny. So do ties and that kind of stuff. So it really is just fashion. I think that when we hold drinks in our hand, it's the same way that we wear jewelry or we make these other kind of, you know, choices. It says something about us. You know, if you're drinking sure. this brand, oh, I'm kind of simple and I'm, you know, just kind of, I'm not too fussy about what I drink. Or if I drink this, you know, I'm a connoisseur and I really know what I'm talking about and I enjoy the finer things. These are all, these are all symbols. So America had always been a heavy whiskey drinking nation up through the fifties. But as the baby boomers started to drink, you've got this cultural movement you know, you've got people protesting the Vietnam War. You've got a lot of a lot of changes. And whiskey had always been associated with this older America. It was kind of your grandfather's drink, you know, that sort of thing. And they start turning away from it the same way they were turning away from a lot of things about the past. They started to embrace clear spirits like vodka. There's kind of a subversive appeal to vodka. I mean, this is the drink of the Russians. You know, there are adversaries in the Cold War. You know, there's kind right. of a an appeal there. I've also got wine culture that's growing up, that kind of thing. So that's that's a big reason for it. And the whiskey industry, which had been huge before that point, really started to to crater. Prices started to go down, and it really was seen as a marginal thing, just something drink in certain parts of the country. You know, on the as you said, on the tailgates of pickup trucks, the image really did change. So it's very clear that you're not only passionate about this, but you've done an incredible amount of research. Were you compiling research for years before you wrote your book or what was the genesis of your book? Because every book has a backstory mm -hmm. and I would love to hear a little bit about why you decided to write it and how, how did it happen? Well, as I was saying before, I had, you know, this interest in it, wanted to learn about it, always had wanted to write a book. And when you see that kind of gap in the market, writing a book, it's a little bit like starting a company. You see a whole 
in a market, you know, there's a need for a good or a service like, oh, this doesn't exist. Maybe I can provide it. It was the same thing with this book. I really enjoy these books like you know, Mark Kurlansky's Salt or Cod or, you know, where you tell a greater story using a, a smaller object. Sure. I thought, well, whiskey is a perfect way to do that. And so that was the goal. Yeah, I started to do the research just kind of on my own, kind of gathering string, um, start to put it together. And when I realized it really could be a book, you know, I started pitching around for an agent. I came up with a pitch, you know, hey, this is what the book would look like. Almost like what you read on the inside cover of a book describing it. Yeah. Um, got an agent. I was very lucky, like super lucky in a lot of regards. And then put together a proposal and the proposal's taken out to publishers and, you know, they bid on it and that sort of thing. And that once you get an advance, that gives you the time to then go and do the research and really write it. So you're, you're writing it, you're, you're obviously taking it seriously, almost like a business, right? You see a gap in mm-hmm. the market and the book comes out and w- what are you, because I think for authors, there are always certain parts of the book that you're most proud of. As you're doing research, you're potentially uncovering things that history has either forgotten or not paid enough attention to. So are there any parts of the book that you feel, you know, historians just missed essentially? And that the larger public like needs to be aware of what you discovered or rediscovered. One of the favorite things I discovered, and I certainly didn't seek out to write any kind of an expose. I really like the product and I, I kind of celebrate and cherish its history like a lot of fans do. But you start to realize how often the history of the of whiskey as it's told is wrapped up into the marketing. And as I'm laying out a book, you know, that kind of shows the plot of American history, but also looking at the themes, one of the, my favorite themes to explore was kind of this great hustle, which kind of sits at the heart of American culture, you know, businessmen selling something There's a little bit of this, you can almost call it a hucksterism, you know, if you will, like put, you know, slapping an image on a label and then telling a story. And it's really just a story. I mean, the product itself sure. and that story had always been in soft focus. I mean, it's always, you look at the labels on these bottles so there's the frontier imagery and then as you start to peel back the layers of the history you see all of these other stories there were a lot of distillers that i had discovered or not even distiller distillers and also people who own liquor companies who didn't really want their images on the bottle because they didn't think it would market well and i discovered hmm. a businessman named lewis rosensteel so he's jewish and, and i had discovered and i later did a story in the atlantic about it this whole heritage of American Jews who had distilled and were very much a part of this rich legacy. Um, Isaac Wolf Bernheim is the character I really used to tell this story and never wanted his name on the label because he didn't think it would market. And his name was Isaac Wolf Bernheim. And you might know a brand I.W. Harper. Hmm. Well, Harper was just the name of his horse trainer. And he decided to use that because it just sounded more American. And stories like that are rife throughout American whiskey, you know, Rosensteel, he was a bit of a controversial figure. And I looked up pictures of him and he certainly doesn't look like all the frontiersmen you see on these bottles. You know, he was wearing, in one of the pictures, first pictures I saw of him, he was wearing these glasses with the yellow tint, you know, kind of like you'd associate with Atlantic City bookies. Um, He had gotten his (laughs) leg up. Yeah, he'd gotten his leg up in the industry during Prohibition. And and all of the, the big industry leaders in the latter half of the 20th century had been associated with organized crime. Um, it was discovered later, you know, the Kafavar committee hearings and all this, all these kinds of things. He was bisexual. 
at a time when that would have been looked down upon, but he kind of flaunted it in the office a little bit. Oh, wow. There are, ru- there are Which rumors. Which is a, a that, super brave move because, I mean, not a, extremely. Not a lot well, of people he, cheering he, you on. No, and he owns a whole floor of the Empire State Building. At one point in the 50s, he owned close to half of all the bourbon in the United States. Uh, there wow. are these rumors that the reason the Justice Department wasn't going after the whiskey industry, which had a whole history of being corrupt, was that you know, it was because he was sleeping with J. Edgar Hoover. His wife testified that she saw it, later recanted her testimony, and you know, their perjury, perjury came up, and that was a whole mess. But really just an extremely colorful figure. Um, but he also was one of the richest men in the country. He's donating monies to charity. I would bring him up while I was doing research to some of these companies that had been owned by him at one point. And they would say things like, oh, in this industry, we really don't like to talk about that guy. And it <laughs> kind of goes to this other image that really sells the product. And it's one of you know the heartland, the frontier, log cabins. And you know I would see that. And then there were all these other stories that kind of balanced that out that were much more much more real. And then the other aspect of that is when you go into a liquor store and you see a million different labels you know, on the shelf and you kind of associate each one with its own separate distillery. At the time I was doing the book, there were really just eight companies making 99% of it. And a lot of these small brands that a lot of people associated you know, with being craft were being made by these companies and just marketed under different labels. And that's been part of the whiskey industry since the 19th century. But what a lot of people thought as being, you know, small and craft, because that is really what tugs at our heartstrings, it really wasn't. But these companies, these big giant corporations making it, also were doing a pretty good job. Whiskey's not like beer, you know, it's an industrial product. Scale, technology, in a lot of ways, can help make it a better product and bring the price down. So it's not the kind of conversation you know we often have when we're having these kind of foodie discussions, and you know you kind of pick up some glossy ma- you know food magazine, and they kind of are. It really feels like you're just reading a big giant advertisement. You know the industry knows the reality. Like look, technology, scale, you know all of these things that I don't don't tug at the heartstrings do make a better product, but that certainly doesn't sell a product. So going back to the whiskey rebellion, it's like Jefferson's image of the small human farmer that's what sells the product but the industry really did turn into what hamilton wanted you know centralized large industry so it's like the industry that as it is and then the industry as it wants people to see them and those are two very different things now in the past six years we've had a huge huge growth in the craft industry sector so it's changing we have a lot more small distilleries that really are small and are making these products so it's it's kind of balancing back the industry started when it was on the frontier as lots of little human farmers dotting the countrysides, you know, their distilleries puffing away. And then by the year 2000, it became the Hamilton thing, eight companies making 99% of it at 13 distilleries. And now we're kind of shifting back more towards the middle. You've got a lot more distilleries out there because whiskey has become popular again and people have, there's a renewed interest in it. And I thought that was just a really interesting story. Do you think that balance and where there are large companies and where there's uh, still an explosion of experimentation and craft brewers and things, do you think that that's good for the industry? Are you impartial or what What do you think? And, and how does that tie into the future of the industry too? Because your book, uh, Bourbon Empire, the subtitle hints at the future of the industry. So yeah, how does that point to the future? Well, I think it's great for the industry to have this balance. 
The thing about the industry consolidating down to just a few producers is that those few producers actually did a very good job, but they all were promoting their own individual winning formulas. And over the course of the consolidation, there were a lot of you know, unique ways of making whiskey that kind of got forgotten. One distillery might grind their grains to you know a certain size, whereas another one did it to another size. And that all affects the flavor. And you'd see all of these different methods kind of consolidated down to just a few things. So those few companies making whiskey might have made really great whiskey, and they really do. But it starts falling into a na- more narrow and narrow flavor profile. And as we see more small distillers come onto the scene, they're expanding you know, back out. In, in the book, I, I end with a distillery, Coppersy, which is in upstate New York. And Coppersy really goes back to doing things this way that with a lot of methods like green malting and all these kind of very technically, you know, kind of geeky things that had been totally lost out of the system. And they're kind of bringing them back. And so consumers can now see, oh, this is a, a kind of a flavor profile that I've never really had before, but it's how whiskey once existed. So as the industry balances back, we're sort of seeing the whole spectrum of what whiskey can be. So I think it's ultimately a great thing and they kind of challenge each other. Some of these big companies are also very experimental on Buffalo trace, which is actually the distillery where it's at was once owned by that man, Louis Rosensteel. I was just talking about, um, is very experimental. They have a whole experimental program and they experiment with different kinds of woods for aging and do all this stuff. So you see a lot of innovation in the industry right now, both big and small. And so it's very exciting. So uh, this is all positive. Very cool. So we like to wrap up all of the interviews we do on Mission Daily with a series of kind of rapid fire questions. Feel free to go long on any of them if, if you want. Uh, sure. But if you're ready, let's uh, jump into the uh, lightning round here. Okay. Reed, what is your favorite fiction and favorite nonfiction book that you've read in the last couple of years? So for fiction, I actually have a really good friend who has a new novel out with Riverhead called Bangkok Wakes to Rain that I've just started reading. His name's Pachaya Sudamad that I'm really really enjoying. I know it's a friend of mine. So it sounds like I'm promoting my friend's book, but it's actually oh, a, no. a lovely, a lovely book. That's what real um, friends do. So I'm so right. Far. <laughs> I know. And nonfiction. I mean, I, I've got a stack. I'm a big supporter of my local library just so the books don't, don't stack up. You know, I just finished reading Ian Frazier's uh, Hogs Gone Wild. He's a writer for The New Yorker and it's a book of essays and he's just a beautiful writer. He has a, a beautiful style all of these nonfiction essays that came out that I, I, I've really been enjoying as well. And uh, Jill Lepore's writing. She just wrote These Truths and The Secret History of Wonder Woman. I think that she is a fabulous writer. She just has a great style, really good sense of humor, and is just extremely smart. And when it comes to apps and things like that on your phone, are you trying to stay away from your phone? Are there any apps on your home screen that you love? Basically, like, what's the relationship with your phone? How's it, how's it going? I have a pretty good relationship with my phone. I think people's attention spans, you know, we all talk about how they're deteriorating and that sort of thing. I actually, I try really hard to, I put, I've got an app on my phone where I go into the settings and once, you know, 30 minutes of social media hits my phone, it's done per day. You know, I'm very careful about going out on certain social media platforms where it really just seems like people are just arguing with each other all the time. I mean, it's a very bad headspace for me personally, so I, I, I avoid it. 
the app that's running the my, the my Spotify app actually is almost all, always running through. I think it's really important when I watch movies to place my phone in another room. Yeah. So I, I sometimes people make fun of you being a ludite when when you criticize technology that way, but I, I think we also need to look at the downsides as well as some of the very positive upsides of our technology. And it's you know we're not afraid of technology when we're critical of some of these new technologies we just we just have to be thoughtful about them couldn't agree more and you mentioned movies so when you're relaxing are you watching feature films are you watching originals or series what do you prefer i am watching a lot of series enjoy you know netflix you know that sort of thing i enjoy a lot of the the new series coming out there i loved the americans you know mindhunter i really think you know, series have kind of become the new movies. You know, we're yeah. seeing a lot of disruption in that space and we're seeing you know, this old format, feature films, you know, 120 minutes roughly or so. And you're seeing filmmakers and writers starting to be able to break out and maybe go eight hours so that films are starting to feel a little more like novels. I think that's really exciting. I enjoy that. Same here. And when it comes to spirits and whiskey, what are you drinking and are there any recommendations do you have for uh, those of us who have no idea what's going on in the spirit space, but we know what we like. <laughs> You've just opened up a... <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Do we uh, tee ourselves up for round two? <laughs> yeah, well, with whisk, I mean, I always try to try a lot of new things that people are you know, putting out. And people will send me samples because I've done the book and that sort of stuff. So I'm tasting all kinds of kinds of interesting things. I think it's funny because people come to me because I wrote a book about it and they'll ask me, well, what's your favorite whiskey? I don't really have a favorite. A lot of different companies do a lot of things really well. And there's kind of a different whiskey for every different time. You know, there's sitting by a campfire, you might want a scotch that's really smoky, but you know, if it's hot outside, you might want something a little bit lighter. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not really monogamous when it comes to like my, my, my whiskey choices. But one thing is I feel like I always disappoint people when they come to me with this question because they expect, you know, that I'll, I'll name something that nobody's ever heard of and it'll be some secret. And a lot of times, if you were to look at my liquor shelf, it's a lot of pretty ordinary stuff. It's a lot of stuff that's pretty available. I feel like that's kind of at the heart of the story of American Mm -hmm. whiskey is that this was always accessible. It never really had to be that expensive. It was kind of a casual thing. And when I look at all the up marketing, it's kind of part of that great hustle. I look at all the upmarketing and the luxury branding. I see that and I, I kind of turn away from that. It, a lot of that really is just a sales job as, as opposed yep. to what's, what's specifically in the bottle. So you don't have to spend a lot. There's a lot of really good stuff that isn't rarefied or hard to get. Is that uh, like a bullet or what, are there like three, maybe three picks like of your go-to whiskeys? You know, I like a lot of the stuff that comes out of Buffalo Trace. They make a lot of different brands, you know, like Buffalo Trace and Weller and Blanton's, Eagle that kind of stuff. You know, the stuff that comes out of Wild Turkey, I've always been a big fan of. That's a, that's a funny story, too. In the book, Wild Turkey, decades ago, I had that reputation for being a little bit more of that whiskey you were drinking and you know, on the tailgate of a pickup truck. But when I started researching the book and I'm talking to the distiller and I'm touring all these distilleries, it's a very big industrial-looking place when you go there. But then when you start to look at how they make their product, there were a lot of things that they did, such as, you know, a, a very low distillation proof, which are things that actually cost a little bit more money to do, but can result in a lot of really interesting flavors. So whiskey geeks all kind of give them a lot of credit for doing really interesting work, although their reputation from decades before was 
the total opposite. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see that split between our perception of a brand, but then the reality of the brand. And Wild Turkey is a great example of that. And I enjoy their products. Very cool. And I'm not, and I'm not paid by any brands to <laughs> promote anything. So. Uh, disclosure is always important. Uh, Reed, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Bourbon Empire is out. Um, where should people look for the book? Where's the best place to find it? At your local bookstore. It's on Amazon. Um, wherever people buy books, it's pretty much awesome. there. Sounds great. Reed, thanks for taking the time. And for everyone listening, we will see you next time. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.